Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the only person in Silicon Valley without a VR unit, but in my spare time, I talk about tech and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. And while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair is John Favreau, a filmmaker who has directed films ranging from Elf to Iron Man to The Jungle Book. You may also know him as an actor who starred in the hit comedy Swingers and had a recurring role as one of Monica Geller's boyfriends in Friends. Now he's getting into virtual reality, directing a VR film called Gnomes and Goblins that debuted earlier this year. John, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you. So I just was at your office um, trying out Gnomes and Goblins, which I thought was fantastic. And we're going to get into that in a minute because I thought it was one of the more successful VR efforts and much more imaginative than a lot of stuff I've seen, which is a lot of shoot 'em up or or you're falling out of an airplane kind of thing. So let, we're going to talk about that in a minute, but let's talk about your background a little bit so people have a sense. You're extraordinarily successful Hollywood creator, writer, actor, everything. I do a little of everything. Yeah. yeah. So talk a little bit about your background. You came, you came into being known, I guess, through Swingers, which was a that was Yeah, that was kind of the big one. I got my first break, because you need, you need a lot of little breaks that mm-hmm. happen on a regular basis, and the first one was being cast in the film Rudy. It was uh, about yep. Notre Dame football. Yep. And that got me out of Chicago where I was doing improv at the time. I grew up in New York, but I had moved to Chicago to do improvisational comedy. Yeah, it's still uh, the mecca of, uh, of improv. And there's always a new crop coming out of there, and there mm-hmm. has been for decades now. And so I had, yeah, I'd gotten Rudy, came out here, and then after, uh, and I began writing because I was reading a lot of scripts and w- wasn't getting any big breaks. And it sounds quick when we tell the story, but mm-hmm. it was really oh, yeah, a few years, you yeah. know. But that was, that's what kind of got the attention of, of people in town. And that led to me making a living as a as a writer, doing rewrites mostly. There's a lot of there's a, a pretty good, at least at the time, there was a pretty robust economy for people in film development, mm-hmm. uh, be it executives or people who were doing rewrites and things like that. And I made a living, and uh, eventually, you know, it wasn't really till I had directed Elf that it kind of broke to the next level where sure. I was on the list of of directors as well. So mm-hmm. uh, that that did well, and, and that led to the opportunities that you know slowly have unfolded since right and so you've done a lot of different movies uh, a lot of the ones that got most attention are these action movies yeah um, yeah and uh, talk a little bit about those because they're highly technical like you've done a lot of movies with a lot of special effects and things sure like well especially you know uh, gra- gradually i built up to it i was pretty low tech in the no, beginning oh, yeah, swingers was not very swingers was low tech and elf- like a hat and stuff <laughs> you're right and then, and an elf uh was a lot of stop motion a lot yep. of forced perspective there was a lot of uh lo-fi uh, visual effects a little bit of cg for the flying reindeer flying but, reindeer, right. but i was really i was i really shied away from using too much uh cgi because i i didn't feel you know when it worked well it worked really well like jurassic park but but after jurassic park there were a lot of ones where it didn't work as well mm-hmm. and i felt it was being overused it was very expensive and it didn't age well right. it didn't age well but i, I gradually worked my way uh, to the point that we did Iron Man, where ILM was doing some really good work with hard surfaces mm-hmm. and uh, different different materials, are more difficult or easier to fool the audience with. Mm-hmm. So, so shiny metal is right. uh, is pretty easy to do by comparison to organic material or fur. But uh, subsequently, leading up to Jungle Book, I was I was very impressed with what I saw in other people's movies and mm-hmm. and uh, and also the methodology that went to shooting visual effects films that took into account that visual effects was going to be part of it and planning for it. I was very right. impressed with Gravity, for example, mm-hmm. where they 
had planned all the visual effects ahead of time and, and, and filmed it with the proper interactive elements. And, and that gave them a fighting chance to, to make it photo real. And I was really convinced by the environment created in that movie. And so when we, we took on the challenge of Jungle Book, we, we really planned it as though we were doing a visual effects element so talk shoot. about Jungle Book because a lot of it was just computers, correct? You yeah. Did, you yeah. did a lot of it. It was not, didn't exist. Yeah, there was, I mean, it was, it was really an exercise in what's the minimal amount of photography you could do for a film because Mm -hmm. we knew we were going to have talking animals and, and to, we decided pretty early on. Those don't exist right now. Don't exist. No, no, very difficult. And, and even not talking animals isn't, isn't the best set of circumstances to work under, especially when you're working with a kid. Right. And so you had one human cast member playing Mowgli, Neil Seti was the actor, and then we had voices. And Mm -hmm. so we really had to develop a whole pipeline through which to to make this a convincing story where the, the goal was to make the visual effects kind of disappear so you felt like you were really were in a jungle even though we, we filmed all of it in downtown Los Angeles. So talk about that. What did, how did you do that? What was the... Because I think Jungle Book was a real leap for a lot of people. It, it was a, a bit of a challenge. You had, you know, the, the, the inherent challenge of remaking something that's beloved by many and and also talking animals is a, is a challenge in and of itself to have that not take you out of the, the reality, the emotional reality of the story. But there was also the, the challenge of designing animals and characters that could convey emotion and, and make you get lost in, in the emotion of mm-hmm. what's going on on the screen. And so there were, uh, you know, we used the, t- the technical aspects are, are pretty complicated, but, but the effect was meant to be very simple. Mm-hmm. And that was to kind of make the audience forget that they're looking at a magic trick. And, right. and so we, we, you know, we started off with the front end of a of an animated film, which is uh, if you've ever seen the making of like a Pixar film, right. uh, you still have artists with pencils and and story departments and and several iterations and show reels and and you get to see how it plays with temp dialogue and and when the story starts to really work well, then in in animation you would go into the layout phase, which is when you have people sitting at computer bays and and uh, figuring out where the camera is going to go and how the lighting is done and how the character is going to move around and. And we, instead of doing that stage, we took the middle part of the process from like Avatar where we used motion capture to do the layout and it felt more like a a regular set. We had our actor there and we had people standing in for the other performers and we built uh, sets that had the proper topography. So we, and, and we would then once we captured those performances and recorded the voices, we we then would set the cameras and, and deliver that to the editor and, and together we would, we would edit a version of the film that we use as a template for the actual photography. Do you ever imagine a day when you, and we're going to get into this in VR, where you don't need the actors at all? You can create them from things. Well, my, my thing with all of these technical innovations is, is the more you make it about people, the better it is. Mm-hmm. So if you're using the technology to, to deepen the connection that you're feeling between filmmaker and audience, uh, actor and audience... The more you do that, the more people connect. Because I think people are not actually connecting with the technology. I think the technology is, is, is just a medium. Facilitator. Yeah. So if you, if you ever hear Lasseter talk about Pixar, so much is made of what was the ren- new rendering hardware that's being used and, mm-hmm. and uh, how, how much, what, what innovations have gone into the photorealism. But if you ever, you know, but he'll, he's the first to say that's like, to, to say a computer makes those films is like saying a, a pencil makes the you know the old mm-hmm. animated mm-hmm. movies. It it doesn't work that way. You're just offering a better a better set of tools, and it's honestly the amount of artistry that goes into it uh, on every level and narrative 
and, and narrative, right? So it's the artistry. It's a team. It's it's much like you know. I worked on a film, uh, Chef, uh, mm-hmm. before Wonderful Jungle film. Book. Thank I you. And and I really learned a lot about this style of filmmaking. I didn't know at the time I was, but watching how chefs connect with their kitchen staff, with, mm-hmm. you know, it's a brigade, brigade system. It's it's highly organized, highly trained people. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody's job is very well defined, but but all of them are working in concert to effectively convey the chef's vision. You know, so there has to be consistency in, in every station to make mm-hmm. the dish come out just the way, you know, Thomas Keller would want. If you go to the French Laundry, mm-hmm. you're going to want to know that every time you go, you're going to get his vision, whether he's there or not. Right. And that requires organization and skill and training and a lot of a lot of effort goes into creating that experience for, mm-hmm. for the audience or the, or the customer in that case. And in the case of a highly technical film like Jungle Book, where you have thousands of people working on it, so much of that is to convey the shared vision and to have a sense of quality control as the as the plates are coming out the pass. Right, right. And that wasn't something I had really understood to the level with with the level of complexity that I saw in the culinary world. Do you have to become a complex thinker to be a director and even actor today? I don't know um so many ways to interpret what complex might mean. I right. think that there's tremendous complexity in the way the business is, is is evolving. I think there's complexity in the technical aspects. But I think that the basic skill set that's most required is a is is taste for tone and 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 for storytelling. And and if you have a handle on on storytelling, there are a lot of really well intended, experienced, talented people around you that can offer, you know, it can help kind of smooth out the learning curve on right. all of these new things. Talk about how you got into VR then, because here's something, you know, VR is something that Silicon Valley's moved forward rather quickly with, yeah. without a lot of content. And a lot of the content seems somewhat reductive. I don't know, like the obvious things, the porn, the the adventure kind of things, a little shoot Well, it's a off. Nickelodeon phase yeah. of it. You know, it's, yeah. it's early days. Right. You know, it's, it's things, things, you know, as Moore's Law, everything's evolving very quickly. But if you, if you look on right. the calendar, it hasn't really been mainstream for very long. And so this is all kind of a predictable cycle, I, I think. Sure. So talk about how you got into it. And then in the next section, I want to talk about your I, I creation. I, I visited Valve once years ago and happened to try one of the early development kits of the Oculus because they have, they're into yeah. some interest, you know, they just, they're, they're a lab. They explore lots of things. That, mm-hmm. And I was lucky enough to be there. I think I could, it's been long enough I could say that. Yeah, they were looking at, you know, playing around with VR. And uh, it was very interesting because it was, uh, you know, I felt, um, you know, a low latency accurately tracked experience it was you know it was, it was very early days it was many years ago it was long sure. before jungle book long before chef I, I don't even remember how many years ago it was but it was very it was before the dk was out mm-hmm. for the beta was out for consumers so it was, it was very early and i, and I thought it was kind of cool and then later on uh, andy jones who was my head of animation on jungle book who had worked in vr was bringing some of the motion capture some of the technical staff who were working on motion capture on Jungle Book at, at lunch, you know, they were here in Playa Vista, uh, Weaver, which is the company he worked with, that mm-hmm. does VR down in in Venice. And at lunch, he was going to show them the new, I, I guess it was the new development kit of the Vive mm-hmm. that, that Valve had actually been part of the development of. And uh, I had asked to tag along, and I came along. Why did you in, tag along? You just wanted to see it? You were I was curious what, what had happened, because I, I, mm-hmm. I, I remember seeing the first... When I tried the, the Oculus at first, it was um, it felt like a bit of a, a, a breakthrough. And then when I saw the, the home development kit, the consumer-grade one, that I think was using accelerometers for mm-hmm. tracking, mm-hmm. it seemed to have lost a certain 
uh, snap. Like it wasn't the same level as it. And I had heard that these new innovations that both Vive and, and Oculus, by the way, I would, I would group them also with having had breakthroughs that, that created and what I, what I experienced when I went to Weaver and they had the blue, which is the, the experience yes. where you dive with the whale. Mm-hmm. That was one of the demos that I did there. And because of whatever the combination was of low latency and tracking information and, and I, I'm not sure what adds up to, but the phenomenon of presence mm-hmm. that you get where your, where your brain is on a certain fundamental level completely fooled by mm-hmm. by what you're experiencing even though you know you know the, the well you lose it right away you lose that sense of that it's fake right away you, you do well like you know it is like yeah. like uh your prefrontal cortex is very well aware that you're in a room with goggles on but the rest of like the old brain your uh-huh. lizard brain is like completely cool completely yeah or scared or uh-huh. something very primal very so you, you know, put limbic. this on you go over to weaver I put it on, I go there, and I'm very, uh, you know, I'm not, I was very overwhelmed, first thing. I was, first of all, I was impressed with the technology. Second of all, even even the blue, which is meant to be a very awe-inspiring, relaxed, peaceful experience, was was very overwhelming for me. It took me, it took me twice to get through it. Uh, yeah, I, I think upsetting is too strong of a term, but I was, it was a lot for me to take in. Mm-hmm. Like, it took me two times. Too visceral. To, it was it was it was too intense. Like mm-hmm. it was too intense for me. And I think it's I, I think it honestly is a um, having now messed around and watched people go through demos. Everybody's wired differently. Some people have tremendous tolerance for intensity in, mm-hmm. in VR, and other people. And I would say with movies too. Like I don't like really scary horror with pop outs and stuff, mm-hmm. and or intense rides. And there are certain people who aren't afraid. I have kids, and I could see certain kids. They just have different tastes, right? Uh, and they have the same basic right. experience. Growing up in childhood, they're growing up in the same household, but yet some like right. scarier rides and other people don't have any tolerance for it. So I think there's some maybe nature nurture thing. I'm not sure what contributes to it, uh-huh. but I know for me personally, I was really impressed with it. I was really taken by it, but also felt it was very, I, I sometimes would feel relieved when an, a VR experience was over and I pull the HMD off and I would feel like it, I'm like I, I went through something and I was yeah. I liked it and I liked doing it again, especially once I've been through it once, like like with a scary it ride. Disturbed you in some way. I like to do it, but it was challenging to get through it. Yeah. And and that night I went home and it really stuck with me. It really the experience really stuck stuck with me. And and then I one of the just like whenever any rush of inspiration happens, I, I just grabbed some paper and wrote down a few pages of, of thoughts of that night of what I would do with this. What I would do with this. And I I told Andy that it happened, and he said, you know, he had been working with Weaver on the Blue. He had mm-hmm. been working there before he had worked on Jungle Book, and he said, you should come over and talk to them. It's a, it's a very uh, informal organization. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it has financing, but it doesn't really work for a parent company. It's more like a, a lab, a studio, really, like a very uh, right. informal studio that's looking to innovate in this new medium. We're here with John Favreau, who is a famous director, actor, and now a VR impresario when we get back. FreshBooks is a super simple cloud accounting software that's helping over 5 million small businesses conquer their administrative and paperwork in less time with way less stress. It only takes 30 seconds to create and send a polished, professional-looking invoice. And customers who accept online payments with FreshBooks get paid three days faster on average. FreshBooks can even show you whether or not a client has looked at an invoice you've emailed. They also track your expenses, cash flow, and the time you're spending on each project. See how FreshBooks' thoughtful, intuitive design can make a huge difference in how you deal with your day-to-day paperwork. 
To get a free 30-day trial, go to freshbooks.com slash recode and enter recode decode in the how you heard about us section. That's freshbooks.com slash recode to start your 30-day free trial. I'd also like to tell you about Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who did you talk to this week? Kara. I talked to Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson did many cool things in his life, and he's also one of the guys who branded Donald Trump a short-fingered vulgarian. That was back when he ran Spy with Graydon Carter back in the 80s. So we talked about Donald Trump's evolution, or lack of it, because Kurt's got a very good beat on him. And we talked about the way the media landscape's changed, and Kurt was running Spy Magazine and Inside.com and Studio 360. It's a pretty interesting conversation, and you get to listen to it for free. Back to your free, awesome show. You can find Recode Media on iTunes, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're here with John Favreau, well-known Hollywood director, actor, writer, and now a VR guy. Mm-hmm. A techie. So you, you were talking about you went over to Weaver, you saw it, it yeah. impressed you and yes. disturbed you at the same time. Yes. What I, I don't want to overstate the disturbing. Yeah. It was over, overwhelming. overwhelming me. Let's okay, put it that got, way. You got overwhelmed so much that you it was started positive. drawing yeah. that night. Yeah, I started I started writing out a list of what I would do because what what struck me about VR is at its best, it feels like lucid dreaming. Mm-hmm. I love that description, it, lucid dreaming. So you're in a dream state, but you know it. But you have agency and you know it. And I, when I know I'm dreaming, I could do things like I could fly. I could, like there's certain things I know I could do once I realize I'm dreaming and mm-hmm. if I could preserve the experience of, of maintaining that state. And uh, but it's a bit surreal. It doesn't feel like reality, and it's a little hazy. But there are very strong, you know. Uh, definitely, it's uh, again, it's it's a bit overwhelming too. What you're seeing and experiencing, and you know, it's your subconscious kind of you know yelling at you, right? That's what happens when you're dreaming, right? Uh, so imagery becomes very impactful, and there is some internal rule system, but it doesn't apply to the same rules that you deal with in waking life. So you started drawing these. Gnomes, Drawing, or goblins, some goblins, yeah, uh-huh. some some. Why goblins? What did they? I know. I like I, maybe my old Dungeons and Dragons days. There's yeah. something You're a about gamer, fantasy. Right? I was, I was definitely in high school. I liked it a lot, and this, mm-hmm. and it's not unlike what this. You know, definitely that skill set has informed this because, you know, in that world, you're it's a curated experience that the, the whoever's running the game uh, designs, mm-hmm. but. But the impression, if it's a good game, is that that you have complete freedom to do whatever you want. It's open world. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though wherever you go, there's somebody kind of looking after you and making sure that the experience is fun. A mm-hmm. uh, host. And, and by the way, being a, a film director isn't, isn't that different because you're, you know, you're inviting people into a world that you've curated for them and, and hopefully they're having a good time. And I, I, I find that's... That was another interesting thing of, of working with chefs in preparation for that film was that film directors and, and chefs and, and to some extent DJs, but people, there's definitely a, a personality type where they get a big kick out of other people having a good time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it is, but I find that there's a similar way of looking at things between like the filmmaking world and the, and the, and the chef world. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, filmmaking really comes from the tradition of magicians and, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 you know, if you ever saw Hugo Melies, there's mm-hmm. a there's this whole sense of using this new technology to create illusions that make storytelling more impactful. So you draw these goblins and gnomes. Oh, sorry, and then I really got off the question there. No, I like there. that. I'm like, okay. I'm completely delighted. But you draw these figures, and then you go to yeah. Weaver, and now you're a partner there. What, well, I went. Well, it was it's a slow it's a slow process, right? And 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 uh, what what happened was I went there and I pitched, mm-hmm. and when I pitched, they liked. The pitch mm-hmm. and the pitch was, you know, right right now what's up and available 
is, a, is just a free preview. It's really a vertical right. slice of what it is. It was, right. it was something we wanted, just proof of concept. Did you call it a pink something? Pink, oh, pink spoon? Like pink at Baskin-Robbins? Yeah. Like you get the little spoon. pink spoon yeah, okay. for free? Yeah. Uh, yeah, just we wanted to not try to, not call this a full experience because there's a whole world and a set of other characters, yeah. the gnomes, and and a lot of things that we're working on to make it a full experience that where you could spend a lot of time in it. But right now you spend, you went through it. You could yeah. spend a few minutes and be entertained. Right. Completely. But it's just, a, and, and, and however many times you do it, it reacts differently and, and we could talk about the particulars of it. But but I went there, pitched it, and then after talking and going back and forth, they, they said it was something that they would be comfortable Develop. uh, developing. So uh, at that point, I liked the, company that were backing me and, and I figured it was, you know, I wanted to also back it up and they were going through a uh, financing round and I, you know, I wouldn't say I'm a, you said partner, I wouldn't say a partner, but it was something I wanted to be part of, be part of. And, mm-hmm. you know, cause I believed in what was going on there and I knew that they were putting a lot of money into this thing. Mm-hmm. It was going to take a lot of So people. you're an investor too. I'm an investor. Also. Yeah. That's yeah. how, that's how, uh, you know, it's also important to get really well-known Hollywood people involved in this as they move forward because it does create a new kind of creator in a lot of ways. Even though it's similar, you're talking about it being similar, it does also, it's a different experience. It, it, it is, but it's not, I mean, when you talk to investors, you're talking to people who are bringing significant resources to something and, and, and really taking a bet on it. Mm-hmm. This is more a way of me saying, I like what you're doing and I appreciate you taking the time to handle this properly. And I really think that there's some... I like the culture here and I like what I, I think that there's, this is going to be around for a while. And, it, and this particular studio, I wanted to encourage what they were doing because I've, I, I've d- worked in VR in other places. I've worked in VR as part of uh, marketing for Jungle marketing, Book. Right. And look, it's exciting to work on it, but it, the, the model's completely different. The mm-hmm. model is about how do you get content to the most eyeballs to help drive business to another medium. Right. And so you're really give, giving, reflections of what you're creating in another medium. Mm-hmm. And what I like about what they're doing over there at Weaver is they, they're partnering up with a lot of different people and in, in partnering up with different creatives, they're opening themselves up for innovation. And so there are certain experiences that are made to create an impression that's more uh, accessible technically because it doesn't require the same technical parameters, but, but Gnomes and Goblins requires room scale and controllers and right. it's available only on the Vive now, and it will be with Oculus as they put out their hand controllers and their room scale. Mm-hmm. So this is really asking them to, they're really limiting the audience that this is available to, but but by the same token, they're they're testing the limits of what's technically possible, possible in this medium. Mm-hmm. That's not something you could do when you're doing a marketing time. No, you're just doing, please come watch Jungle Book. Here, here you it could. is. You certainly could decide. We did. We so. did two things, but they're not, no, because it requires money to yeah. do it, and, yeah. and it doesn't fit within marketing budgets to do right. something that's targeted at a very limited out. audience. Right so you're looking for benefactors in this. And so I like that the, this is following a startup pattern. So they're deciding for themselves what the big long game is for this technology. And as a storyteller, I like that because I can work in other media. So mm-hmm. this is the one I'm, if I'm going to work in VR, it's because I'm, I'm curious about where it's going. Mm-hmm. not what the easiest uh, way right. to do it is. So talk a little bit about this game. I do want to talk about innovation in Hollywood or, and lack thereof at the same time yeah. because the economics are changing so drastically. First, talk about what you were trying to achieve here in Gnomes and Goblins because I think that you are going for a very different experience. It's more unusual than others I've seen. It's nicer 
it's not as frightening, it's not as overwhelming, and yet it it's very delightful. Like when you stick your head inside the goblin holes, I don't know what they're called. <laughs> the, lo- the little uh, the it sounds um, something like Donald Trump would say. I the the uh, let's see the, the the hollowed logs that they live the in. Hollow logs, okay. Yeah, okay. The delightful homes, the Keebler elves. <laughs> so talk about what you're trying to do because we talked a little bit when I was using it about not wanting to be scared, not wanting to be. Yeah, so I wanted stimulated. I, I guess the, the the short answer is I wanted to create an experience that would make you want to stay there, and you would feel disappointed when you pulled the the headset off. Mm-hmm. And I really only felt that once when I was demoing other VR mm-hmm. properties. Which was what? Tilt brush. Okay, because because I could tell you more how I felt, and mm-hmm. maybe we could figure out together why. Mm-hmm. Okay. I put it on. You know, you're in a dark space, at least when I was trying the demo. And and then you start painting in 3D. And then you start learning. There's a bit of a learning curve. You start to learn how the tools work. So now you're you're getting into a little bit of a flow. And I'm an artist. I draw. And now I'm starting to play with it. And now I'm creating something. And now I'm trying to see what I could do with this thing. And mm-hmm. and, and it's very clear that nothing's surprising is going to happen. Everything that's being created there, I'm creating in this big, in this void. And you start to, you know, you kind of get lost in in a creative flow. And and then when I pulled the headset off, I had spent more time in there than I thought I had, mm-hmm. which is a good, yeah, that's a, a good, good sign. Yeah. Like as a filmmaker, like that's a good thing. Yeah. Like when you look up and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe the movie's almost over. That's I have a text thing. If I don't text at all during right. a movie, it's a good movie. If that's there's good. Seven, you shouldn't be texting texts. in movies And yet all. I do. And in, yet I in the do. theater, you do? Yeah, sometimes. See, now Some we're learning about it. different cultures from North and Southern <laughs> we California. We're not going to have any of it if it doesn't entertain us. In the house, it's hard. You know, that's a hard thing. Yeah, too, that's to true. Create then you have to rules. check things. That's the other part. It is true, but it's, it's, it does change. You know, part of the challenge now is to be the, you know, you want to be sort of the, the base content that's being watched. You want to be the one that's drawing. Yeah. Yeah. You want to be compelling enough that it's hard that yeah, you can't done, look John. away. It's done. You need to move I don't on. know. I think, I think uh, well, we could talk about that. All right, but get back to this game. But, so but let's get back to you were trying to create a, so, so now an the, immersive space now, that wasn't frightening. Well, that's what I think it was because then I, the other ones, I felt, I, I enjoyed them, but it was definitely like I felt like I'd been through, a cha- I'd been challenged and when I take the thing off, I feel like I accomplished something. And I was like, what could we do in this environment to make it feel like you're, um, like you look forward to being in there? Mm-hmm. And, and part of it was scale. I think that's a very important aspect of, of VR that I don't know that people are taking full advantage of. So so when you're down below the, the depths of the ocean and, and this blue whale goes by you, even though it's very peaceful and nice, it's still the scale of it just starts triggering different parts of your primal brain yeah, that says like, this Whoa. is something bigger than me that's close to me. Right. And then it, there was an impression in, that, in, in the blue because the blue whale goes by you and the eye comes close to you, it feels like it's looking at you, though it's not right. tracking you. But it's a it's it's a very effective illusion. Mm-hmm. And then eye contact felt like it was another thing to create connection. Right. And so what we wanted to do is create a connection that felt emotional between you and this little goblin creature. Right. So part of it was to create an environment I have to that was you. inviting. The yeah. eyes? Yeah. You know, I was at MIT many years ago, and I remember the original people that were doing robots, yes. kind of hum- humanoid robots, yes. were saying the eyes are always the problem. They, people sure. can be tricked until they get to the eyes. Well, Disney had, you know, yeah. Disney had, like, Hall of Presidents. That's so, you know, that's, that's kind of the tip. It, right. But in the case of VR, what's nice is if you think of it, if you run the pipe the other way, you're not just using the the HMD, the headset you wear, to provide tracking information like you wouldn't 
by the way, it's very similar technology that you use in, in motion capture. In motion capture, using this mm-hmm. to, to track where the subject is. In VR, you're using it to track the location of the observer. Mm-hmm. But if you use it and make the person a character in it, you could then extrapolate where their eyes are. You could create eye contact. Right. Uh, we s- would scale the experience based on the height of the wearer. Yeah, wear. you did that once you're doing something. Right. So when you first light the candle to get into the experience, we measure your height and we scale the world to your height. Right. So if a little kid's in there, I got kids, so I'm, I'm always thinking about that. Like if a, the goblin's small enough to be cute and not scare me, that's part of what makes you right. feel comfortable. Uh, but if a kid is a third of my height or half my height, that goblin's going to be, you know, twice as big. A little scary. So we scale it down for the kids. And so inevitably there's a sense of that you're looking at something small and cute and mm-hmm. vulnerable who's looking mm-hmm. at you and very coy. And then there's a – we built a lot of state machines so that the goblin's behavior actually changes depending on how close you get, uh, how fast you so it's move. like an animal actually. Like an animal, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, and so they seem to... For just one second, though, I felt, because like, I've watched too many Hollywood movies, I thought it was like going to be Goonies or something where they suddenly the teeth come out or something. Sure, and I There's think... There's one moment where I was like, are they going to attack me? But you'd have to develop that trust level. Yeah. And I think that's... that's part, Look, I learned a lot about Walt Disney through working there, mm-hmm. and I really am fascinated by his... The path of his career. Mm-hmm. Because he was somebody that would really look to the old stories mm-hmm. and brand new technology and, and would combine those things in his own unique way. Right. And, you know, even Disneyland, I would count as that. It was almost, Disneyland is almost like a VR experience. Oh, at that there's a lot level. of stuff going on there. That We right. had uh, Tom Steggs and also Bob Iger many times on stage when we talked about that. It is uh, the predecessor to this. I think he would, you know, from what I know about him, it, it feels like it, it would have, this is something that would have been compelling. Oh, absolutely. To Disney. And, and if you look at things like Dark Rides or Hall of mm-hmm. Presidents or Audio mm-hmm. Animatronics, mm-hmm. You could see that there's, you know, part of it is that you form deep connections with these stories and these characters. So part of it is how you select the stories that you tell and go back to subject matter that people know or storylines that people know, conflicts, themes that people are familiar with on a deep level, but then use these new technologies to help make it fresh and new and different. But what you're trying to do here is not violent, possibly violent or overwhelming or adventure-seeking. I think that's a lot of what VR is right now. You're on a boat, you're in the air, you're jumping off a cliff or things like that, which are all exciting. But you were going for something very different from most people. Well, we want story. Like, we definitely don't want to feel like you're in some boring open world where there's no shape to the experience. Mm -hmm. It's hard to tell because this is, again, just a a, a preview. But we want, every world has rules. Mm -hmm. What are the rules of the world that I would want to spend time and if I'm choosing to put this on and step out of, you know, escape from, from an entertainment in this particular medium. And I, I really think we want, we seek out connection. And so although a, a lot of work was went to the art direction and the sounds and the, how tactile the world feels mm-hmm. and how many little hidden secret things there are to look at for your curiosity, I think at its core, we were most compelled by the Turing test aspect of it. Of can you really make the audience feel that they're connecting with another creature that is connected right. with you? Do you know what was one of the most effective things? When the uh, fireflies started swirling around me. I don't mm-hmm. know why that was delightful <laughs> to me. But that was enormously satisfying for some reason. Thank and you. I don't know why. I don't know. You know, right now we're just poking and you trying. Felt like you were in it. You it, felt it, like you were it in it. It feels very immersive. And hopefully what happens is, you know, much like when you go to Disneyland, you know... Mm-hmm. there's a certain level of intensity you're going to experience. If you want to go on, you know, maybe there's a little bit of a drop in the pirate's ride or, but, you know, unless you're going to Tower of Terror and California Adventure or something, you're, you kind of know 
what that range is going to be. And there's uh, an excitement to it, but there's also a sense of, you know, the personality of the experience you're going to get. Mm-hmm. And I guess maybe it's because I'm at the point in my life I'm in now. I'm, I'm turning 50 next week. Mm-hmm. And um, I got kids. I, you know, I'm, 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 all, I'm all for it. I like yeah. it. Yeah. But you're in the part where you're seeing the world through your kids' eyes mm-hmm. as much if not more as through your own. And you kind of have a sense of how things work and you get a sense of the whole ride yeah. from beginning to end. Uh, my yeah. kids are 10, 13, and 15. Oh, so right in the Snapchat era now. Yeah, they're right in the social <laughs> thing. And, yeah. and, you know, and so there's a, a sense that there's, you know, what's the, how t- technology is, it's just going to keep getting more and more profound. And, and how do you maintain a sense of human connection through all of this? Talk a little bit about where things are going, where storytelling yeah. is going. I want to talk about that because Hollywood has sort of been upset by technology a little bit. The whole thing has been sort of moved around and there's been different reactions to it. One is to go fully technological. The other is to pull back from it. You know, you've uh, upset a, meaning Meaning they changed. don't know what to change. The change right, right, has right. been upsetting and the fact that Facebook, that Amazon, that mm-hmm. Netflix is now controlling a lot of the discussion with making content and everything. And there's new power players in the equation and studios feel slightly antiquated in that feeling. How yeah. do you look at it? You know, you well, had an enormously have successful a, career. I have a different perspective because okay. I'm not a studio. I'm, I'm a content creator. Right. Well, it's so good for a, you. It, it is good for me in that there was, well, technology first really threatened the the film business mm-hmm. because of piracy. And so revenues were dropping. D- DVDs were really bolstering the film mm-hmm. economy and, and, and allowed studios to take risks on properties that otherwise would not have, they would not have made risks on because if something didn't perform at the box office, there was a good chance if it was a quality production, it would make its money on a home video. Somewhere else, yeah. Right. Then that went away. It really fell off a cliff faster than anybody mm-hmm. could imagine. And there wasn't a lot of money in, in streaming of any kind, electronic sell-through, subscription, SVOD. None, none of it was really mm-hmm. amounting to enough money to make a difference. And then through the services that you that you just listed, all of a sudden the revenue began to climb again and first level off and now now climb. So it allows for content to be created that is not being generated from a place of fear from the investor standpoint. Mm-hmm. Now you might not be able to make the same type of movies you did when I started out, but people are telling stories in other media that are very personal and very compelling. And and as an audience member, it's very nice for me to be able to have all of these different destinations and find a story that's made just for me. So how do you feel as someone who's been very successful in the, I don't want to say the old system, but it was. Yeah. You've had you, you big blockbuster movies, you, you direct, you act. What's it like in that genre? Because in a lot of ways, you have a lot more power. You have so many more choices of places you could go. You could go to Netflix. You could go to eventually Google will get into this. Eventually Facebook will. How does it feel to be thinking of them as your studio is going forward. I think it's, I think the potential here is really exciting because not every story and every way of telling a story is appropriate for every medium. And so if you could find the right place, like I did a show called Dinner for Five, which Mm -hmm. felt a lot like what would be a podcast now. And and IFC was a channel that was kind of starting out and they weren't demanding a big audience, and so they were very happy to have a very conversational inside baseball look at, mm-hmm. at the movie business. If I had tried to put that show on against, you know, 
Letterman, it would have failed. But because I found a a niche, a, de- a niche, it, it, it allowed for that show to has to do whatever it was fifty episodes of that show. And now there's even more of that. If you want to do something, if you want to have yourself uh, making play doh from scratch, you could do that and put it on YouTube and maybe get you mm-hmm. know hundreds of thousands of people watching it. If you want to just to talk about your day and you could do it in a compelling way, you could do that and you could work your way up through the ranks of all the way up to, you know, I would say the for me the pinnacle is uh, being able to do a big, big budget Hollywood studio film, mm-hmm. but it's a very small target of what is appropriate for that medium. Right. Whereas you could make a Hollywood, a Hollywood film that was geared more towards, let's say, Academy Awards, you know, a movie like Ray, for example, mm-hmm. that budget of movie doesn't really get greenlit as readily. You right. could have a, a lower budget film uh, that that can get greenlit that's geared towards more of a selective audience, like like Chef, for example, mm-hmm. was a it's you know I had to, very well on Netflix. I had to it, yeah, but because of Netflix and because of keeping the budget low and be having it distributed by Open Road, who knew how to fit it into the uh, multiplex system, uh, it was able to be successful. But had we done that film for a big studio budget, it would have been seen as a, as a failure. So is the Hollywood pinnacle the goal? A lot of these creators, that isn't necessarily the goal anymore because well, I mean, well, James Corden last week was talking about he doesn't care about ratings anymore. He cares about YouTube. Views. No, no, I don't, I don't mean it's the goal. There, there's a, for, for me, loving technical innovation to have every golf club available in your bag. Mm-hmm. You have to do a film that's going to appeal broadly to all four quadrants, as, as we say, to you know all ages, mm-hmm. uh, all genders, and all territories. Mm-hmm. It has to travel internationally. Uh, so if you're going to have the resources to do something on the scale of Jungle Book, it has to be something that has to do business everywhere mm-hmm. because they have to make their money back. You you understand what I'm saying? So it's mm-hmm. you have to just inherently do something if you want to. And when I say the pinnacle, I mean the pinnacle of of budget and technology. Mm-hmm. I'm very compelled by doing films that are don't have all of those things. And and in the case of working in VR, mm-hmm. there's not really any audience. any proven path to monetization yet. So really, you're getting excited, but you're working with a small, basically indie game size development team. We worked like a year on this thing because it was such a, you know, such a small group and, and you're working with budgets that are, you know, based on research and development. It's not building towards some windfall that's coming in the foreseeable future. So I think with each idea, what I've found for, for myself personally is, is to have enough of a variety so that you could be inspired in every area. I'm talking about doing a cooking thing. You know, I'm working on a cooking thing with Roy, mm-hmm. with Roy Choi, the chef yeah, that I worked sure. with on Chef. Yeah. That's not something that would be a big budget Hollywood movie. It's something right. that probably would will end up, you know, uh, being streamed through the internet. Uh, but that's very exciting to me. So I, I think it's having an understanding of media to help you tailor your experience so that the stories and projects you work on, you're not frustrated by the fact that the economics of it right. aren't the way they used to be. You have to, you have to be flexible and understand that things are changing and there's a way to, to find satisfaction in, in the new do world. Do you think the larger industry understands that? Understands I think they do. The vast changes that are happening and how people watch. I mean, you're, my kids watch everything on their phones. Yeah, sure. I can't get my son to go, 14 year old to go into a movie theater anymore. He just, I don't like movies. I like to watch it either on demand on a medium-sized screen at home or a normal-sized screen at home yeah. or on the phone. 
All his entertainment is on the phone. Yeah. And I, it's a real shift to watch someone it behave is. like that. It is. So does Hollywood get that? Obviously, you're much I think more they understand that. I think they understand what's going on. I don't know that they understand how to, you know, where the lighthouse is you should aim for. Mm-hmm. I think they all have different strategies. I think there's definitely been an acknowledgement over the last, you know, decade or close to a decade where people really understand what's happening and what's the changes that are coming. And they they see it a lot of, like you're saying, through the eyes of your kids. That's mm-hmm. that's really the most effective learning tool is mm-hmm. to see how they actually consume content. But I also see it and remember, I try to explain to them how if you want to see a cartoon, you had to either see it after school or yeah. on Saturday morning. Yeah. Like, I think it's all, to me, it, it's, um, and maybe it's just a choosing an optimistic yeah, disposition, I, I, but yeah. I really think it's, I think there's really a lot of opportunity for, life to improve on a lot of levels and not, not to be dismissive of of all of the things we should be vigilant about is technology. You always have this with new technology. There's always a, the potential for it to undermine the quality of life. Well, but, I saw Wally. I, I get that. Sure. I mean, I think it's not, I think there are a <laughs> exactly lot of paths to, to that. Like I think on, I think definitely being vigilant is important and understanding, but I do think that there's really wonderful opportunities for people who are storytellers who would have been shut out of the system previously to if you're talented and you have the wherewithal to put something together you can cut through and you can you can spread your wings and and do something you're passionate about because there's no more barrier of entry so do you imagine that an amazon is going to be as important as a fox or a disney Important meaning As, market cap wise. No, they <laughs> because, are market cap. Already. Well, that's they, what I'm saying. So, I'm talking about influence in Hollywood. Influence in Hollywood. You know, when Netflix got started, the head of Time Warner, who I I like very much, Jeff Bukas, called it Latvia or Lithuania, their Lithuanian army, or some some dismissive way. And obviously, Netflix has shown them kind of thing. I, look, I think you know Netflix. You have Ted Sarandos is someone who I've known for a very long time, and he's spent a lot of his efforts in understanding both cultures right you have northern california and the tech community and you have mm-hmm. southern california the hollywood community and then there are lots of subsets to both mm-hmm. there's the independent film scene that was there there's the the television world there's the movie world there's the hollywood world there's the theater people who are involved with theatrical distribution there's so many different facets of of both and i know the tech community also has uh you know there's a lot of different models yeah uh it, and both are very nuanced. I, you know, I, I know the Hollywood aspects better, but, but in, you know, I spent a lot of time up north, especially because I was a tech element in, in Chef, and so I was, mm-hmm. you know, I, I found myself showing the film there a lot and meeting a lot of people from from mm-hmm. those communities, and, and it's very different. It's very different, and uh, I think that Ted taking the time to understand what the needs of both, the aspirations, and the fears of both communities are. Helped him. Uh, to me, it's no surprise that he was one of the first people to yeah, bridge this. So, and it's respected by both from just yeah, anecdotally. Yeah, they have finally come around to Netflix, which is, of course, now that was yesterday. We're starting on other things up in Silicon Valley. We're mm-hmm. going to start doing new things. Um, I want to finish up on your own, very briefly, on your own techness. Are you yeah. really a techie? I mean, I see you're wearing an Apple Watch. I'm wearing and an I Apple am not, Watch. even though I have several. Yeah, things. it's more about. Not hearing my phone. Okay, all right. So, <laughs> but I do like it, and I and I do it when I ex- exercise, and uh-huh. I think there's a lot of potential in, yeah, in especially when you get into biomed. When agreed, tra- there's going to be 
tremendous innovation. Well, it's going to be in inside your ear or something. It's going to well, be that's eye. you know that's no, I, I, that's another that's that's Black Mirror stuff. You know, yeah, but, I love but, Black Mirror. I, but, oh, my favorite. But I think that that the idea that of monitoring, being able to monitor somebody and not just go in to to be monitored on right. you know on a semi regular basis and try to infer what your general health is, you'll be able to. I think I think once people see how much it will help quality of life, mm-hmm. ex- extension of life, and and uh, I, I think that we're going to have to come to terms with some sort of biomedical yeah tracking. Your, your friend Elon Musk wants to put neural networks in our brains so that AI doesn't kill yeah. us. So we're just uh, as smart as AI. Would you like a neural network installed in your neck? I, you know, it's talk to me in a few years. Let's see. Let's see how you made a you whole know, movie about a ne- this all, Essentially, Iron Man is a neural network. It, it is, and it does, and it, and that's how I met Elon. Was yeah. through was through him uh, giving advice on that. that now, Robert, is that based on him? Robert, Down- it's not based on him. It's based on the the comic book. But yeah. but Robert uh, Downey said, you know, when we were prepping Iron Man, he said, "There's somebody we should sit down and talk with." I've, uh-huh. I've but, he had been connected with Elon, said this is a guy who's actually can give us some insight into what it would really be like to be Tony Stark. He's a yeah. rocket scientist and he's, uh, you know, uh, somebody who, you know, shared a lot of the the life experience that, that a Tony Stark would. Mm-hmm. And we sat with him and and asked, picked his brain and you've spoken to him, a very interesting guy. And, and I just maintained a friendship. And at the time, remember, that was before the S had launched. Yeah. It was, I was there at the... And the space be, and the Mars before and the AI. We filmed, we filmed at SpaceX, yeah. uh, Iron Man Two. We yeah. filmed at SpaceX. Oh, that was did. yeah. He let us film there for free. It was. Yeah. He's been a very good friend of the yeah. of the Marvel family there, and I just maintained a, a friendship with him. And and um, and so I have a lot of these conversations about exactly what you're talking about. And and I think you know I could follow. As well as anyone, I think mm-hmm. he's just a very smart guy. So yeah, it, it, I think it, his it, basic message is the human race is doomed. But that's an I, I don't think I a don't little th- bit. I think he's he just didn't. I think he's kind of hopeful. Like I think yeah. he definitely is is drawing attention to things that we should AI. keep track of. Yeah, especially Google owning all the AI. That's but, but I think we should be paying yeah. attention to AI. But I'm also working in a way with AI. You know, in that we're building very simple, uh, reactive you know, state machines that can affect behavior of something that's synthetic and right. with this little enjoyable experience. So I think that there's, you know, it, it's not going to not happen. It's just, it's, no. it's, it's going to happen. It's a question of who controls And it. I'm happy that a guy like him is, is saying, hey, let's keep an eye on this. And, yeah. and, and hopefully I could help innovate with all, you know, certainly with the entertainment side of things and say, yeah. hey, let's try to keep it. Let's remember what's important about story. Story is about yeah. connecting us as people. Story is about passing wisdom on from one generation to the next. It's about the humanity of, of this experience that we're going through that seems very overwhelming. Yeah. And you can't, you know, with your kids, you wish you could just tell them where all the blind alleys are and not to touch mm-hmm. every stove, but, but right. they're going to have to go through it themselves. Absolutely. And, and storytelling is a compression technology where we can take what we feel is important aspects of what life is about and we can make it entertaining enough for them to be getting some aspirin in the applesauce and enjoying the experience of being told a story because you're entertaining them. Right. But in fact, you're getting through to them on some subconscious level. Yeah. I like the, your humanity argument. I do think we're doomed, but I'm, I'm on the doomed thing. I think the robots are going to take us over all. And, really? Yes, I do. I'm sorry to tell you. You talk to a lot of people. So I do. I'm, I'm, uh, uh, but yeah. I like self-driving cars. Anyway, um, very last question. If you could have anything invented, like you think of inventions throughout all your movies, uh, uh-huh. what would you like invented? Oh, you obviously wow. invented the jetpack for that's the a glorified jetpack, yeah. essentially. I boy, I don't. That's such a good question. You want to you want to give it a, a thoughtful answer, and I nothing's coming to my mind now. I I think 
I guess because we're talking about biomed, I think technology associated with not just medical intervention, but, but wellness in general, I think that there's a, I think we could solve a lot of problems, both economic and, and just the hardship of what, you know, illness and, and mm-hmm. not understanding, not being in touch with what's going on with everybody in touch with their own bodies and mm-hmm. what they can do to have greater quality of life and just getting a feedback system that would offer um, a more accurate accounting of, of how feedback on how your life right. patterns are affecting your life. I like that answer. I always say time machine. I want a time machine. Impossible. That yeah. one's impossible. It's not impossible. Google's making it right now in their you would, basement. You would change. If you could go forward. You can't go back. Oh, uh, we'll see. Uh, why don't you do a movie about it? It seems you, like I did. It was a thorough had it. The, <laughs> but the, the, yeah, if you go back, you, you keep going back until you hit a reality where it's never. You, you keep changing things until yes. you hit a reality where it's yes. never discovered, and then yes. and then you're locked into that base reality. Oh my goodness! See, right? you are a nerd. See, as it turns out. <laughs> anyway, John, this has been fantastic. Great and talking I really to appreciate you. it. This is John Favreau the well-known Hollywood director, writer, actor, who is also a closet geek, as it turns out. (laughs) And he believes humanity will prevail. I do not. And we'll just see what happens. We'll see. We'll see. John, thanks for coming by. It was great talking to you. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with Late Late Show host James Corden, Pokemon Go creator John Hankey, and TaskRabbit CEO Stacey Brown Philpot, just to name a few. All those interviews and more are at recode.net slash decode. Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts? Recode Media with Peter Kafka comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Two Embarrassed Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like the Code Conference, where we have a great interview with Elon Musk from this year, Peter Kafka's Code Media, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Digital Media, which distributes this show. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then.